Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast episode 16. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And it has been a little bit since I've done an episode. And there are very good reasons for that. Uh, Mostly because I have got infected with the COVID-19 virus, also known as um, former elected officials in this country would refer to as the Wu flu or the uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings flu. That's what I have. I am... I guess I'm about four or five days into this. I felt pretty shitty the first couple of days. Didn't even know I had it. I thought it was just a combination of uh, Texas allergies and just general uh, acid reflux. I don't know. I've had like stomach issues for years. So I thought it was just a combination of the two. And, you know, when your head and your stomach are just fucking wreaking havoc on you, like you're, you basically, your whole body just feels like garbage. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't attribute it to COVID really. I got about two days in first day suck. Second day I was like, I didn't feel any better. And I still didn't think it was COVID it was the same thing. I was just insanely nauseous. Uh, just like car sick, on a boat sick, whatever the fuck. Mo- it just felt like motion sickness and a really bad sinus headache. So by day three, I figured, oh, I'd, I'll feel a little bit better. But day three was worse. So... <laughs> So I go to the, I go to a uh, doctor and she tells me, uh, yeah, you probably have some type of virus. We'll get you all tested up and shit. But yeah, typically the way viruses run is there's about a, um, there's about a six day just kind of spike where you'll, you're just going to feel shitty. And uh, on that timeline of shitty like day three, day four is the worst. And that's right where I was when I got to the doctor's office. So I went to the doctor's office to get a checkup and uh, to get tested. They tested me for the flu, which came back negative. And then uh, I think the nurse, the nurse, wow. No, she was a doctor. She was a physician. Um, the doctor was like, I think she was kind of, I think she was sweet on me. I think she was attracted to my uh, debilitated uh, manly state. Um, She was like, you know, this usually takes a couple days for the results to get in, but uh, I'll have these in by tomorrow morning. I'll put a rush on it. I was like, all right. And then, and then I was, then I had sex with her inside the office because... 
Nothing's free. A little quid pro quo. Feel me? No, that didn't happen. But yeah, she did put a rush on my uh, my test results, and and uh, yesterday morning, I get a phone call, and they told me I tested positive for COVID, and I gotta stay in my house for ten days, or at least ten days from when infection began. So. Um, so I'll probably be here in the house for another five or six days. I do feel quite a bit better. Uh, every day I feel a little bit better. So, so that's cool. (laughs) I'll be fine guys. Don't worry. The, uh, but yes, the, um, the Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings disease is, uh, it fucking sucks. But um Adam, that's that is horribly culturally insensitive. Relax, okay. I did see uh Shang Chi in the Legend of the Ten Rings recently. Cause uh um Yeah, it was just one of those things where it was a group of people and I really didn't have an opinion on what we should watch and they put that on and it's like Marvel movies. They're mostly like, they're not, they don't like, they're not shitty, but, and there's a few of them that are really like amazing and shit. Uh, but they're like, a lot of them are just big and loud and like empty and retarded. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't, and I would say that the uh, Shang-Chi kind of leans in that direction. You know, I wouldn't say it's a horrible movie, but it was like everyone felt like they were in a fuck, like standing in front of a green screen, which is horribly distracting. But I, I did find you know most of the actors were great. Um, I actually like all the actors were pretty good. Um, but I don't know. It got way too fantastical. It was like you know what the movie should have been for all of you who've seen uh, Shang Chi. It should have been just a ripoff of Big Trouble in Little China for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, it takes place, it starts in San Francisco. There's like a big bus fight on the Muni and, you know, the bus doesn't have any homeless guys jerking off on it or anything like that. And it's just completely, un, it's just not realistic at all. But it should have just stayed in San Francisco. They should have like... Also, they had what? What's that? What's the what's her face from Crazy Rich Asians? The one that has the fucking smokers voice. <laughs> uh, Waka uh, Flocka, not Waka Flocka, Aquafina. Someone told me that was her name, so I'm just gonna assume that they weren't lying. I guess she's a rapper. And, uh, she should have been, she should have been like some other character that like what, <laughs> what Shang-Chi really needed was a white sidekick. He needed, the guy who played Shang-Chi was cool. Like I was like, all right, I totally believe, you know, like this guy seems, he seems a lot more plausible as a superhero than most Marvel characters, I think. 
more so than Mark fucking Ruffalo, who was in the uh, post credit scene, and he looks like he has fucking leukemia. He looks like shit. It's like a, it's it's like, dude, you couldn't fucking wash your face. Well, you couldn't wash the cum out of your eyes before you showed up to set Mark Ruffalo. Jesus. Anyways, the. But, and, you know, the guy who plays Shang-Chi, I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy's good. But he needs, like, a fucking white Jack Burton sidekick. You know? Isn't that terrible? Really, Adam, what this movie needs is a white man to upstage the hero? No, not to upstage the hero. Aren't, aren't people nowadays, all, like, all, all consumed with having, like, white dudes look like fucking, like, dumbasses and inept fucking dipshits like that's this is exactly where you need a fucking uh a lame white dude who says like cool shit not dumb shit but cool shit that, that's what this movie needed and they and that's that's basically my only critique of the movie uh on top of they need to they should have just stayed in san francisco that that could have been cool ant-man takes place in san francisco you could have had a fucking ant-man cameo Okay, it's fucking genius. Anyways, I don't want to fucking talk about Marvel movies. I will never review a Marvel movie on this fucking show, ever. It'll never, ever happen. It's not that kind of show. You know, nothing against people who review Marvel movies, but let's face it. Those people get paid by Disney to give positive reviews. I mean, that's the reality. They get free swag and get invited to the uh, premiere and shit like that. Not on this show. And they wouldn't fucking do a show with COVID either. They'd probably shut down their whole goddamn studio and burn their microphones. They, who, who knows what they would do? Not at Skeleton Factory. Okay, we have, we have principles here. We have integrity. Who's we? It's just me in here. Okay. Um, you know what? I realized, you know, when I realized I was sick, I was, uh, it was on Friday. I had nothing going on on Friday. So I woke up feeling like shit. And this is before I had I, uh, my doctor's appointment. So I'm up super early because I can't sleep. I woke up just covered in sweat, and I'm just like, I'm going to go just watch TV. I sit down, and I'm just like completely sleep-deprived. I've been sweating in my fucking clothes all night. And I was like, okay, I want to I wanna watch the most like mellow, unobtrusive fucking thing that I can watch that I'll actually enjoy watching. So I watched a double feature of The Princess Bride and Willow, which right off the bat, if you don't know, The Princess Bride and Willow are like two of the greatest movies ever made. Okay, I will debate that with anybody. Uh, Willow is better than most fantasy movies. Okay, I will put that up against... Like almost any fantasy movies, besides like the like the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know. Um, 
but good lord. And and you know what? And even Disney knows Willow is fucking amazing because they're making a Willow show as we speak. So it's the only non Star Wars related thing that they're making right now is Willow. So Oh my god. And if you ever seen Willow, uh the um the evil sorceress who's like the bad guy in the movie has a daughter named Sorsha. Oh my God. I had, uh, I still do have like the biggest crush on Sorsha. She's like, I don't know. She's just, there's just some about her. She's just like super hot to me. Big eyes, curly hair. She's like evil. <laughs> she's wearing like black armor. She looks like she's in, uh, she looks like she's in the band Behemoth or something like that. She looks like she's in a fucking black metal band. She has a sick sword, and she's evil, and she's on the bad guy side. But she ends up, be, uh, you know, becoming good at the end because she got some of that Val Kilmer penis, and that'll turn any woman good or bad. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I watched The Princess Bride and Willow, and... Um, this is how I knew I was really sick <laughs> because it didn't dawn on me, you know, after days of agonizing pain. Um, <laughs> I'll try, I'm going to really try not to fucking cough too much. I tried to record this yesterday and I couldn't stop coughing. So, <laughs> okay. So I realized I was really sick when the first, like the opening music to the Princess Bride started playing, <laughs> my fucking eyes welled up with water. <laughs> and in the beginning of the movie, uh, fucking Peter Falk goes to fucking uh, Fred Savage's house because he's sick. And Peter Falk, Columbo, is fucking, uh, he's, uh, he's Fred Savage's grandpa and his grandpa is going to come over and, and read him this book that he read to Fred Savage's dad and his father read to him. And it's like this, this family tradition of every time you're sick, you know, uh, someone's dad or grandpa, like, will read this book to you. And it's called the princess bride. So he starts reading the book and the book, it, like he, he's reading it. And then it goes into the world of the princess bride and it's like young, sexy Carrie Ells and uh, what's her face? Fucking uh, Robin Wright. Was it Robin Wright? Yeah, it's Robin Wright. Um, like smoking hot. And it's she. he starts telling the story about how she was like kind of like this rich girl who lived in the country and all that she loved to do in life was ride her horse and like boss around the uh the like farm boy the like he's like a he's like a worker on his father's farm and and that's Carrie Ells and she would just give him random tasks to like farm boy I need you to fucking you know I need you to wash my fucking horse and go pick up my dry cleaning or whatever the fuck and no matter what she would request he would always respond with, as you wish. <laughs> I, I'm getting emotional now just thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> so basically, 
after a while, like no matter how bratty and snotty she was to him, he would always respond with as you wish. And then one day she realized that um, every time he said that he was really saying, I love you. And when she realized that she realized that uh, she loved him. And then that's kind of like the beginning of this like love story. That's it's like the manliest love story that exists next to like gladiator. It's fucking, it's great. Um, or Braveheart. I think Braveheart's a, maybe that's a more apt comparison. I don't know, but Oh my God. I realized when I was sick, when, <laughs> when the grandpa was explaining like the fucking, the, as you wish fucking like what, what, what that all means in the story. And I just, my, I just start tears are coming out of my fucking eyes and I just start laughing at how fucking stupid I must look sitting on the couch at fucking like five in the morning crying at the prince's bride like a bitch. (laughs) But Christmas time, if you're like trapped indoors and you got a fucking watch a bunch of movies with family, especially there's kids around and you can't watch Scarface and Goodfellas and shit like that. You have to watch something that's like family friendly. Or if you have a mother-in-law like I do, who uh, doesn't watch secular movies at all or TV, she just is like, won't do it. Like Princess Bride is great. Like that's completely acceptable uh, watching. Anyone can watch it. And then I watched, after that I watched Willow and I thought I was over the hump. <laughs> oh my god, I thought I was over the hump. Okay, so basically, if you haven't seen Willow, Willow is like a little person who lives in a little person village, and but he's like a his his people are like a like fantasy. They're kind of like uh, uh, like hobbits, you know. They're they 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 have they're like hobbits sort of, and they live in their own little part of the world separated from like normal sized people. And he has to, he has this task where uh, his children found like a normal sized, like a, like a regular, excuse me, a baby that floated up in a stream uh, on their village. And he's tasked with taking the baby back to her own people and it's dangerous and shit because basically everything outside their village is just death and murder and fucking. It's basically the battle scenes from fucking uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's just people being impaled on poles and dragons and fire and death everywhere. So it makes sense. He would rather not do t- take on this task. He wants to like stay, uh, you know, in his hood. But Willow is tasked by like the head dude of the village to go take this baby back to uh, her, her own kind. And uh, so the, they, they, they cobble together a group that's going to go with Willow to protect him, to uh, take him on his journey. And before he leaves, Willow says goodbye to his wife. And she like, she's like, this is for luck. And she puts in his hand, like, I like basically a, her entire braided ponytail that she cut off and then just gave to him. So it's like this long, 
rope of braided hair that's tied with a ribbon. You know, it's like, <laughs> she's like, here, this is for luck. And Willow looks at it and is like, he realizes like, oh my God, like she cut off her fucking hair and shit. And <laughs> like, as soon as that happened, I started crying again. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sick. I have to go to a doctor. <laughs> I need to get my testosterone checked. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I was, I was just overwhelmed with fucking nostalgia. And then I went to the doctor, and then the doctor's <laughs> like, yeah, you have fucking COVID, and uh, you need to fucking not leave your house for two weeks and shit. So I was like, okay, cool. <clears throat> And then they said there I was going to be contacted by a contract uh, contact tracing team, whatever the fuck that means. They're like, we want to know everyone you came in contact with since the time you think you got sick. I mean, so <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I probably come into contact with like literally hundreds of people. So, good luck with that shit. Anyways, no one's contacted me yet, so. So much for their contact tracing team. They don't even know how to fucking contact people. But that's fine, because I, I can barely remember where the fuck I was an hour ago. Anyway. Uh, but one thing I realized, just sitting here having COVID and taking toxic doses of ibuprofen and elderberry uh, supplements, I realized that, uh, you know, um, hey, hey, Habibi, Habibi, my love, let me tell you something. Uh, we don't live in a simulation, okay? I, I, I googled why... Why do people do drugs? I, I just Googled that. Like, why do people do drugs? And the internet gave me three answers why. Here are the three answers. Answer, okay. The three reasons. Reason one, emotional. Um, people feel they need drugs to fill a void in their lives, whether it's stress or trauma or relationship issues. Or whatever, okay? Emotional. That's the that's like the first reason. Second reason is physical. Feeling like they need the physical effects of the high, or or low, to physically feel better. And then the third reason is psychological. General feelings of inadequ uh, inadequacy towards themselves or the world. So they use drugs to boost their confidence and, and self-esteem and ability to make sense of things, okay? Those are the three reasons. And when I thought about that, I was like, huh, all these retards who think fucking DMT is somehow better than just old school acid, like... People who people who just like did acid back in the day and then just stopped because you know you, your brain can only handle your brain can only be so much of a chemical sponge. Like 
like simulation theory just sounds fucking stupid. You know what I mean? Like, so what, you just simulate misery and pain? Like, why would you do that? Why would you simulate, why would you simulate someone to have misery and pain just randomly? Do you play the Sims and just give the plague to everybody? I guess you could if you really wanted to. You could build a house in the Sims with no windows or doors and put a person inside of it. And then um, they, the person would just walk in circles and run into the walls until they go crazy. Or like Roller Coaster Tycoon. You can just make a roller coaster where the track just fucking ends. And then, you know, a, you know, a, a roller coaster car full of people just flies into the distance and fucking crashes. You know, that's... That's that's your fucking precious simulation theory, okay? So we don't live in a simulation. That's what I've learned from coronavirus. Okay, Habibi? Okay. Well, I did watch some movies, believe it or not. <clears throat> I did watch some movies. Um, I think it's a pretty decent mix of movies. And the first one I'm going to go into right now is... I was a teenage zombie from 1987. And basically, um, it's very low budget, but I do like it. And I, right off the bat, I'll just say I, I do recommend it. Um, and I'll get into, you know, why later. But here's basically, I was a teenage zombie. Uh, a group of high school friends looking to score some weed. Uh, they get sold some some bunk weed. Some they got some bunk shit from a dealer named uh, Mussolini. Uh, the our sort of one of our main characters tasked with acquiring the weed is uh, Gordy. He. Uh, is approached by Mussolini and he's uh, Mussolini sells him some bad shit. And then uh, he goes back to Mussolini to get, uh, well, not just his money, but his friend's money back. Cause they wanted to get a large quantity of it because the, the uh, big school dance is coming up and they wanted to have like, you know, they wanted to have a party and they wanted to have a good time. They So they all went in on a whole bunch of weed. So he goes back to Mussolini get his money back, Mussolini explains that there's no refunds. And he explains this by kicking Gordy's ass. Uh, when Gordy's friends see him all beat up and stuff, they decide that strength in numbers with baseball bats is the best course of action. So they go out and they find Mussolini, demand their money back, and basically shit goes sideways and <laughs> our other main character, our jock stoner best friend of Gordy, Dan, smashes Mussolini in the head with a bat and it kills him. And to cover up the crime of murder, our crew of friends tie a large rock around Mussolini's ankle and throw him in the local river. Once a vow of silence is agreed upon, a report of a uh, 
toxic accident at a nuclear plant uh, contaminated the river, leaking high, highly radioactive shit into the water and deemed off limits by the authorities. Um, it's funny. They were in, cause you find out about the toxic dump through like our characters after they kill Mussolini there. Uh, one of the characters sitting in the car and the radio comes on and it, you know, it's one of those things where he's like, be quiet guys, listen to this. And then the radio reports like, Nuclear plant leaked shit in the fucking river, and now it's toxic, and no one go in the fucking river, basically. And and then they mention it's rather like, like somebody at somebody at the 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 nuclear plant was named Lloyd Kaufman, like they said the name Lloyd Kaufman. If you don't know who he is, Lloyd Kaufman is like the main dude at Trauma Films. Trauma Films is a a very, very independent film company that uh, made the Toxic Avenger, Tromeo and Juliet. What else did they do? Combat Shock, which is, I don't know. That that one doesn't even, that one, that doesn't even seem like a trauma film other than it's, it's very low budget, but it's, it's, I like Combat Shock. It's fucked up. It's good. Um, Anyways, the fact that they just mentioned like, oh, the the name of the guy was uh, Lloyd Kaufman. I was like, oh, that's a nice little shout out to Lloyd Kaufman. Usually, shit like that in movies is annoying to me, where they'll they'll say the name of somebody, but their name is a little too close to someone famous. Like, just I don't know. They just want to shout out a famous person for no reason. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so. The 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 river's fucked, but uh, but our crew of stoner high school buddies decide they decide that they want to have a party anyways. So they're gonna go have a party out in the woods uh, near the river, but not you know not on the river. So they're out in the woods, and all they want is uh you know it's just chicks and beer and good times, right? One of our characters named Bert is like a cool guy, motorcycle dude. And he's part of the group that killed Mussolini. So he's, he's en route to the party in the woods. Like everyone's there and he's like on his way when he has like trouble with his motorcycle. He has to pull over. He's, he's, so he stopped, he's checking out his bike. He's having fuel line trouble or whatever. Uh, he pulls over, but he pulls over next to the river. So, or the lake, whatever, whatever the fuck it is. Um, while in, inspecting his bike, the, the zombified undead body of Mussolini emerges from, from the river and attacks Bert, Sne- comes out of the river He's all green and shit. He looks like, uh, um, he, he looks like, what am I calling? He looks like if, uh, Cheech Marin was the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk. That's what he looks like wearing a, wearing a fucking bucket hat and sneaks up behind him and <clears throat> he ends up, uh, he attacks Bert and, uh, ends up ripping out his tongue 
and then Bert is left to bleed to death on the side of the road. So, uh, did I mention this movie is a love story? This is a love story. This is a story about two two young people in love. In case you haven't picked up on that, uh, through all the murder and drug trafficking, uh, uh, Dan, the our uh, our lovable jock character, has a love interest. This girl at her school named Cindy. It's his crush from school. He's always giving her googly eyes and shit. And after a spat between Cindy and her like throwaway boyfriend character, uh, Dan moves in as the nice guy with good intentions. Our um, so that's Dan. That, they, that's how they set up Dan and Cindy, and then and their little their little love story. And then there's our, like, virgin character of the group. And this dude named Rosencrantz. So there's a scene where Rosencrantz is, like, uh, he's, like, getting a BJ from a girl in his car by the river. And it's the middle of the night. And Mussolini appears. (laughs) And drags the girl like reaches through the window, grabs a girl and pulls her out through the window. And Mussolini uh, like body slams her onto the hood of the car and rapes the girl on the hood of the car. And, uh, it, uh, don't take this the wrong way. It's, it's, it comes off funnier than it, than it sounds. This whole movie is much goofier and much more tongue in cheek than, I've been describing. So keep that in mind. So Rosencrantz freaks out and runs away. And she seems to uh, enjoy the, the zombie dick. She's like screaming and fighting at first. And then she's like screaming in ecstasy and enjoyment, which is funny because Mussolini's like this like seventies pimp looking guy with, green skin, I don't know, uh, and just when Mussolini, <laughs> so, in, 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 in midst, in the middle of the rape, uh, Mussolini grabs the girl's legs and snaps them back behind her head, snapping her legs in half. So she basically just breaks this girl's legs, and now they're, her feet are up by her ears. Not a not a good position to be in. And uh, somehow this kills her, presumably. I don't know. Did I mention this is a comedy? This is a comedy. This is a this is a uh, a like a stoner comedy. It's like it's like Scooby Doo, but with rape. And weed. Anyways. <clears throat> so our nerd of the group, um, our, let me see. Is it Thelma? Who's who's the nerdy chick in fucking Scooby-Doo? Let's call her Thelma. I think that's her name. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so this dude Chucky, he's he's our like nerd of the group. He's like the guy who kind of like looks at everything that's going on and sort of deduces. He figures out everything. He figures out how Mussolini was brought back to life. He figured out that when they threw Mussolini's dead body in the river, when all the radioactive shit was in the water, it was able to reanimate his corpse and bring him back to life. But now he's undead. Not only is he undead, but he's also stronger than he was when he was alive. And it's weird. He's a weird type of zombie. I know it's called I Was a Teenage Zombie, but it's a weird... It's weird because they don't behave like typical zombies. They don't need brains. They don't need to, you know, feast on the living. They, uh, you know, they're, and they, they still retain all their memories and they can talk, but they're zombies still somehow. So, so Chucky convinces the group that they need to, kill Mussolini again before he kills anyone else by setting up an ambush. They need to ambush him because basically he's he's just going on a rampage. Like anyone who comes near the river, he's going to like murder. He's like Jason Voorhees, except, uh, you know, they don't know that he won't stray away and go into town and just start killing people or raping people for that matter. Um, this whole ambush they set up fails and, uh, and it, it ends up, and, and Dan, Dan ends up getting killed during the ambush. He gets his neck snapped by Mussolini. So now that Dan is dead, Chucky figures out the only way to stop Mussolini, instead of like calling the police <laughs> or the army or the military or something. Chucky figures out the only way to stop Mussolini is to abduct Dan's body from his own funeral and throw it in the river. This will bring Dan back to life. So when Dan comes back to life, they can he can do battle with Mussolini as a zombie because Dan was already like in really good shape and athletic and all this shit and strong before he died. So, I mean, if he's going to be stronger once he's a zombie, like that's great. Also, Dan's not like becoming a zombie doesn't make you evil. Like you're basically who you were as a zombie as you were when you were alive. So they figured, okay, well, Dan will be the only one that has like zombie powers who could fight Mussolini and kill him. You know, without getting himself killed, because he can't. He's a fucking zombie. Pretty good plan, right? And so, you know, once Dan comes back to life, him and Mussolini can, you know, do battle, and Dan can destroy Mussolini. And after Dan crawls out of the river, the guys need to explain to him that he's dead, because his memory's a little fuzzy. He's like, what the fuck happened? (laughs) Like, all he knows is he crawled out of the river, and he doesn't know how he got there. So the guys need to explain to him, uh, you're dead, and then we threw your body in the river, and now you're a zombie. 
And by the way, we need you to kill the Mussolini guy because he's like killing and raping everybody. So if you can get on that, that'd be great. This is Dan's new normal. Okay. So meanwhile, Mussolini gets uh, rolled up on by these two gangster dudes, these two fucking Ginzo mobster guys that uh, I guess owe him money. Mussolini owes them money, but they don't know he's, you know, turned into a zombie, you know, so they roll up on him and they're like, hey, hey, yo, you owe us some fucking money, right? And uh, Mussolini ends up just fucking killing both of them. He grabs one guy, smashes his head against the side of a van multiple times, and this, uh, the dude just dies. And then the other guy, he ends up grabbing the guy by the head and twisting his head all the way around until he's dead. So, you know, there's that. You need, uh, you need to have a, you need to establish a, a, you know, a sizable body count in case you didn't realize that Mussolini is a, is a bad person, you know, with all the rape and ripping out of tongues and things like that. Uh, but the the best death scene is when the uh, in the, our little group of high school stoners, there's like the dim-witted guy, the guy who's just kind of like slow and whatever. Um, this guy Lieberman, Lieberman gets in his car with, I guess his girlfriend. I don't know. But they're getting into a car. They look like they just came from, I don't know, a fucking donut shop or some shit. They're carrying a bunch of boxes. As soon as they get in the car, uh, Mussolini is hiding in the back seat, like fucking Michael Myers and shit. He, he's hiding in the back seat of Lieberman's car, surprises him, and then reaches around and rips his face off. And it's probably the best kill of the movie, really. It looked fantastic. For how low budget this movie was, that dude getting his face ripped off looks absolutely fucking great. Great effect on such a low budget. Good job, guys. The whole movie, uh, the guys, despite all the murder and zombie activity, just they just want to like smoke weed and go to the spring dance and get some ass. They, they keep that tone. You know, these guys are still, like, high school, like, kind of loser stoner guys. They're, like, you know, they're nice. You know, they're not fucking malicious people or anything like that. But they're just kind of, like, stupid high schooler dudes. So... <clears throat> So despite everything that's going on, everyone still goes to the spring dance because that's kind of the whole point of the movie is everyone, they want to get a whole bunch of weed, take some chicks out to the fucking spring dance. Everyone gets high. They all go out and fucking get drunk at the at the river and then everyone fucks the end. That That's a, that is a, that's a great life for a bunch of kids, okay? But, you know, the, at the dance... Uh, everyone's there, and then Mussolini <laughs> comes into town, crashes the dance, and corners our heroes. Everyone else runs away, 
and but our heroes are like kind of trapped in a corner. But just when Mussolini has the drop on him, Dan appears out of nowhere with a machete. And now we have our final battle against Mussolini and Dan. And Mussolini and Dan start going at it, and Mussolini is able to overpower him. And in the chaos of their fight, Cindy, who of course is at the dance, is uh, he ends up, she ends up getting killed by Mussolini. And... Dan, Dan finally gets a hold of the machete again and chops off Mussolini's head. And his head flies through the air, lands on a table, but his head is still alive. So his head's just sitting on the table and it's still alive. And It's like, oh, wow, how, how did they do that amazing effect? I don't know. Uh, the head is still alive and uh, Dan fucking chops the fucking head in half, splits it in two. And this finally kills Mussolini because you gotta gotta kill the brain, right? You gotta kill the brain, kill the zombie. So Dan takes Cindy's dead body to the river. So he's carrying her in his arms. And you know, Mussolini is dead. And Dan takes Cindy's body to the river. He carries her in. They both disappear under the radioactive water. Like, do does she come back to life? Presumably, right? But it fades to black. The end. So, the assumption is that uh, Cindy comes back to life, and then Dan now has a... He's got a zombie girlfriend for the rest of eternity. So that's cool. That's sweet. And that was... <laughs> I was a teenage zombie. Uh, it's in, it's very low budget. It's very, very low budget. The audio quality is not amazing, especially in the beginning of the movie. It's, it's at times, completely inaudible. Um, it does incorporate several genres pretty well. It's like a teenage party movie. It's a gory zombie film and it's a love story. So despite poor audio quality and amateur actors, it's, and it's not ridiculously laugh out loud funny, but it is fun and it has heart. It has heart, and that that makes up for a lot. There's a lot of movies like that that are incredibly low budget and have all these like technical problems, but it has heart, and that that to me counts more than you know a flashy budget and you know cinematography and fucking fucking music and all that shit. It's just like, you know, that, like, does your movie have any heart at all? You know, the movie knows what it is. It knows it's a low budget, corny monster movie made by a bunch of 20 somethings, you know? 
Uh, I like I Was a Teenage Zombie. I do recommend it, especially if you're a fan of movies that are put out by AGFA. If you're a fan of trauma and you like trauma films, check out I Was a Teenage Zombie. Try to if if you can and you watch if you watch most movies online or you stream it or whatever, uh Criterion is <laughs> you you can you can watch I Was a Teenage Zombie on Criterion. To my knowledge, they've never actually put out a physical copy of I Was a Teenage Zombie, but but you can stream it on the Criterion website. So that's that's interesting. <laughs> so yes, that was I was a teenage zombie, and it has a lot of heart, despite all of its technical uh, failings. The next movie doesn't have a lot of technical problems. It's got a lot of technical and visual audio <laughs> it's got all it's got all that stuff going for it what it is lacking is story it's lacking good writing and dare i say it's lacking heart this is a, this is a, it's not even, I don't, I don't even want to say it's a, if you read online, people act like this next movie is some type of like, it's like fan service for fans of a genre and it's stuff like that. And it's like, it's like, you no know, Qu- Quentin Tarantino movies are homages to genres and you know everything from like exploitation and you know it, you know it's like it's like a it's like a it's a mashup it's a it's a genre mashup that has good writing to hold all these weird things together you know like <laughs> like gimps and trunks and <laughs> you know <laughs> Were revenge stories where people were fighting with swords and all this other shit that's in Tarantino films. It's just like all this absurdity that's sort of borrowed and picked uh, picked over from other genres. He can get away with it because he knows how to write a story. This next movie grabs a bunch of stuff from genres but it doesn't have the writing to hold it together so the movie kind of flounders especially and this is supposed to be for fans of the genre the, these writers these supposed writers these people aren't fans of the genre they may be fans to some degree or another but they're not being honest if they but it's one thing to be a fan. It's another thing to understand something like you can be, I'll, t- I'll just bring it back to Marvel because it's, you know, it's basic and most people can understand it. Like you can be the biggest fan of all the Marvel movies, know everything about all the Marvel movies, know everything about every character in the Marvel movies, 
But that doesn't mean you know anything about comic books. That doesn't mean you know anything about these characters pre-Marvel cinematic universe. That's what this next movie is. This next movie is people should know (laughs) people who review this and just give it glowing reviews. It's like you're reviewing the surface level. You're basically most of these movie writers, especially in the horror, these horror movie reviewer people. I don't think most of them, especially the ones that get paid money. I don't think they have the time or, you know, I think they get lazy and they just watch the trailer and then kind of write a review based on that. It's like, I I don't find this to be some sort of like love letter to the genre. I just kind of find that a bunch of things were borrowed. They were filmed technically well. But what you're looking at isn't there's there's a lot of gaps in the logic, you know. Like I was a teenage zombie is preposterous. It's absurd. But everything in the story, every character in the story, the the writing is written such that every character you know everyone's relation to everyone else at all times. You understand what archetype each character is. They're the nerd. They're the jock. They're the pretty girl. They're the whatever. You know exactly who they are, and you and you understand how everyone relates to each other and what their motivations are. And then once you establish that, then you can have a story arc where you can kind of see where everyone starts all the way to where everyone ends, you know, and it's a complete package and, you know, but this next movie is 2020's The Last Matinee, directed by Maximiliano Contenti. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to read the, I'm not sure where I got this. might be IMDb, maybe. I'm just going to read what the synopsis is. Actually, I think this is from, uh, I think this is from Wikipedia, actually. Okay, the last matinee. On a stormy night in Montevideo in 1993, an engineering student named Anna takes over the duties of her father, a projectionist at a declining movie theater due to his ill health. Unbeknownst to her, the audience watching the film that she is running are being murdered by a black gloved killer. So that's, that's pretty simple. That's a pretty simple premise. Makes sense. Bunch of people getting picked off by a killer. Simple as can be what Friday the 13th movies are. Bunch of bunch of people at a summer camp that just start getting picked off one at a time by some some dude in a mask. Okay? Lovely. Perfect. <clears throat> and that's the thing. Uh, that's the thing with this movie is like it it has a lot of good things going for it, but then 
like it's like putting on a really fresh, awesome, brand new pair of shoes. But then you just tie the laces together and then you stand up and try to run and then you just fall on your face. That's, you know, that's kind of what this movie felt like to me. Now, to be fair, because I watched it once and when I was done watching it the first time, I think I gave myself a headache with how many times I rolled my eyes, but I gave it, I gave it a few hours and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back and watch this. So I let a couple days go by. I kind of marinated on it and I went back and watched it again. Upon second viewing, I pretty much feel the same way about the movie, but I had time to appreciate the things that I already appreciated the first time I watched it, if that makes sense. So the things that are positive about it, and there's a lot of positive things about it, like I was able to, because um, the first time I watched it, you just sort of absorb the world. You absorb the movie. And the second time around, you can kind of go through and focus in on certain things and really kind of admire the stuff that's good. But then the bad things are also amplified, you know? So, you know, let's get into it. Let's just get into it. Okay. So the last matinee, it's a, uh, it's a good example of, a deceptive trailer. <laughs> the the tra- the trailer the trailer got me. The trailer totally got me. I'm a I'm a sucker for a well cut together trailer. I saw the trailer. I was like, oh, that looks great. I'm gonna see that. And <sighs> here's the thing: if there's a trailer with one of those like official selection of such and such film festival. And it has a little laurel wreath thing around it. It's that is a red flag. Okay. That is a red flag. Um, just because you got into a film festival doesn't mean your, your movie's good. Look at Titan, which won the Palm door, a fucking con film festival this year. Like it's like really? <laughs> Did no other movies get submitted this year? Like I don't I don't understand that. So it uh, uh the last man day with a eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That's the same uh that's the same percentage of people who are vaccinated in Uruguay. Fun fact. The positives and negatives, uh, like I said in this movie, kind of bleed together, you know. There's positives, there's negatives, and then there's sort of like positives that on the surface look really good, but it, it's in service of nothing, so it just kind of spoils. And you're just like, oh, why? I mean, such and such thing was cool, but why did they bother doing that? Like, And then the bad things kind of spoil the things that were like, oh, wow, that was that was a cool-looking kill. Or, you know, like, ooh, the, the way this... Like this whole scene is lit really well, or like, oh, that that actor's performance is really good, and then there's sort of like this, you know, there'll be something in the scene where you're just like, well, why the fuck is that happening? That's that's that doesn't seem good. Um, I don't want to completely shit all over this movie, but I will, uh, you know, I will 
I will point out the positives because, you know, it's like, it's like point out the positives, you know, um, like it has a great location. Um, I like the idea of a bunch of people who are trapped in a theater on a rainy day during a matinee and they can't get out because there's a killer on the loose. That's that's a that's a pretty good premise. I like that. I mean, if I read that somewhere, I'd be like, "Ooh, I need to go see that movie." That sounds that sounds right up my alley. But so I do. I did really enjoy that. Um, you know, but the it's one of those things where if you kind of sit there and think about it, it's like basically the killer. There's like one of those like roll down metal security doors at the front of the theater. The killer like rolls that thing down and then like snaps the like roll the the mechanism that makes it roll back up. He basically breaks that. So now no one can open the door. It's like and there's like one way in, one way out to a theater. I'm like, what building, what theater anywhere is like that? Where it's like one way in one way out. Like that doesn't even seem like in terms of like a, like if you're planning to build a building in any city anywhere, like you can't just have one way in and one way out. There has to be some sort of alternative exit of some kind. Right. I don't know. Any, any contractors in the audience, please let me know. Also, like, the killer, when he basically breaks the door so that it can't be reopened, it's like, well, guess what, genius? Now you're fucking trapped in there, too. Even if you kill everybody, you can't escape. So, what the fuck? (laughs) I could see if it was just, like, a killer with, you know, like... He was on a suicide mission. Like, he's just like, I'm going to kill everyone in this theater and then I'm going to kill myself. Or I'm going to keep, keep killing people till the cops show up and then the cops kill me. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, some kind of rampage killer. And, okay, like, that's not that hard to establish. And I'm like, okay, I, I can go along with that. But this is just like, the guy clearly is motivated to kill everyone and leave. This killer really has no motivation. The killer doesn't have any backstory. He doesn't even really have cool weapons um, or a cool outfit. (laughs) You know, because that's a big part of a slasher villain is like you need to have a, you know, some kind of interesting, you know, outfit on. Sometimes it kind of distinguish you. And he's really just wearing like a big raincoat, which, I mean... That's been done to death. It's like it's like you look you look like the killer from I know what you did last summer or something. It's just uh, wasn't the most original get up. So it's like this small group of people in this theater and they're all spread around this this theater and there's like there's like a crazy old guy who's just watching the same movie over and over again. 
there's like a little kid who just snuck in. He's not even supposed to be there. No one knows he's there. He, he snuck in and now he's just sitting there like by himself watching this scary movie. There's a, there's a young couple like in their twenties who are on a date and they're sitting off by themselves. And then there's, what you might call it. There's actually, I think there's another just random fucking old dude. And then there's like a group of three young teenagers who are like getting drunk. And now they're going to go fucking watch a movie on a rainy afternoon sort of thing. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm on board with that. And then the only other people in the theater are the usher guy and the projectionist lady who we established is covering her father's shift because he's like old and he needs to go home and take a break because the other projectionist, he uh, called in sick or no showed or some shit. Now that's another thing in this movie. They do. uh, There's from my count from my account, there was four separate red herring moments where they established that there is a, uh, like a group of people will like people would be having a conversation where they're like, Oh, so-and-so is supposed to meet us here, but they didn't show up. Like, okay. For instance, there's in the beginning of the movie, the, the the father is like the main projectionist and he owns the theater. He was supposed to go home and be relieved by the other projectionist because there's only two projectionists in the whole theater. And the daughter shows up and she says, okay, dad, we, we you know, we're going to get going. And he's like, the other projectionist didn't show up. So I'm just going to stay here and work. And she's like, no, you're fucking have emphysema and you're fucking old. Go home, get some rest. She's like, I'll run the projector. So you're like, Hmm, that other guy didn't fucking... You got He's using Scooby-Doo logic. That's what I'm doing. I'm using Scooby-Doo logic. Where I'm like, okay. So they established there's this other projectionist that didn't show up. Hmm, we don't know what this guy looks like. Interesting. So right off the bat, in the beginning of the movie, I'm like, hmm, maybe that guy's the killer. I don't know. Maybe he's got an axe to with the boss, and he wants to fucking kill everybody. I don't know. And then, uh, what was the other one? There was, there was some chick who showed up alone to the theater who one of the three, like, drunk uh, high school kids, he goes over there and is like, oh, he, you know, he basically, it's like, hey, can I sit next to you? Can we make out? <laughs> can I rub my pimply face all over yours? Um... Like, she was supposed to meet somebody there, but they stood her up. Now, they don't say who that is. They don't say how old the person is. It could be a date. It could be her dad. It could be anybody. So, they establish that, and it's like, okay, possible red herring. You know, and and there's a couple more. There's a couple more where you think maybe the... Uh, the usher guy might be a um, a red herring, but I mean, I appreciate that they kind of thought that out of like, oh, they're you know, you got you got to have red herrings in the fucking story just to kind of like 
trip you up, you know, like in Scream. I think that's one of the few things that makes the Scream franchise watchable, you know, is that they set up, like, who's the killer? We don't know. So you have, you know, we have to, they're going to throw all these characters at you and you just don't, you don't, you're like, well, who's the killer? You have to kind of figure it out. That's sort of the fun part of it. So I, I did appreciate that about the movie. <clears throat> or, <laughs> but, you know, the, and I don't even necessarily need to have a fucking killer in a movie have like some kind of crazy motivation of like why they have to kill everybody or something like that. Like, <clears throat> but the, you need, you need to have something, you know what I mean? It's one, it's like, even if it's not like at the end where they pull their mask off and have a Scooby-Doo ending and they're like, okay, well like, why did you do what you did? Oh, because you know, this was my, you know, this was my theater and they were going to shut it down and I can't let them shut it down or, oh, I'm a land developer and I want this theater and the only way I can get this theater to shut down is if there was a horrific murder that took place here, but whatever, something, something, but there's nothing. This is one. Okay. Here's the motivation of the actual killer of the movie. Okay. Ready? The killer's motivation is that he collects eyeballs so he can put them into a pickle jar so that he can eat the eyeballs. That's his motivation. He doesn't even, he doesn't talk, by the way. He just, he just pantomimes all this information out to you. And it seems like there would be a more efficient way to collect human eyeballs than having to sneak around a movie theater and pick off people one at a time. It seems like there'd be easier ways of um, getting eyeballs off of people than going to a crowded public theater and murdering people while trying to be sneaky about it. I don't know. And specifically eyeballs. Like, he's not a cannibal. He's not eating brains or people's butt cheeks or any kind of Jeffrey Dahmer shit. You know, he's not collecting skin, like, you know, making lampshades like Ed Gein. He's just, he's just eating eyeballs. Whatever the fuck. Okay, so, I mean, there there is literally a... I timed it. A over... It's it's about a two-minute scene. The Okay, so... Our characters are cornered in the projection room. The killer kicks the door down. And he basically has his eyeball jar with him. And he pulls out an eye and eats it in front of them instead of them like fighting him off. They do outnumber him at this point instead of like fighting him off as soon as he breaks into the room or running away or escaping through other means. They just stand there in terror and watch this guy for two minutes, which in movie time is a long time just to eat an eyeball and just to give you like a reference of how long two minutes is in in movie in movie time. Okay, 
if have you ever seen the Big Lebowski? Of course you have. That's a rhetorical question. So in the scene of the Big Lebowski after Donnie dies, the dude and Walter go to the mortuary to have Donnie cremated and to have his ashes. Um, they're gonna, they're basically collecting his ashes so they can go scatter his ashes. And there's this whole scene where they get the bill for the cremation and Walter uh, goes fucking crazy because there's a $180 bill for the cost of the urn. The cost of the urn that they will put Donnie's ashes into. And he's like, why is this $180? He's like, we're going to scatter the ashes. We don't need the urn. And <laughs> the fucking guy's like, yeah, but we have to transmit the remains into a receptacle. And then they end up go getting getting a Folgers can and putting his ashes in it. That, that whole thing. Every, everyone's seen Big Lebowski. But just that mortuary scene is two minutes long. So think about the length of that scene. Now imagine imagine that length of time a guy in a fucking like Gordon's fisherman rain slicker walks into a room slowly reaches into a jar of pickled eyeballs and without breaking without breaking his gaze like s- stares at our main characters and eats an eyeball before he decides to attack and kill them. It's it, it was fucking... It's laborious. That, that, sh- that scene should have been 15 seconds long. He kicks down the door, he sets the fucking jar down, he reaches into the fucking jar, he fucking shows him it's an eye, puts it in his mouth, eats it, and then attacks him. Like... You don't ha- like you don't have to drag that out to two minutes. Good lord. Anyways, <laughs> oh here's here's a random thing the uh, the actual matinee movie that's playing the the movie that everyone's watching in the theater. Um, you would assume it's just a fake movie because movies do that all the time. There's just like, if someone's watching TV or they're watching a movie, it's like a phony movie or whatever. But it's actually, in this movie, the the movie that's playing at the matinee is a actual real movie, if you want to call it that. It's And it's called Frankenstein, Day of the Beast. That's a real movie. And, I don't know. Like, movies that remind you of better movies, like, you need to tread lightly with with that. It's like Frankenstein, Day of the Beast, and the movie has all kinds of shit. It's got Dario Argento's opera poster in the fucking lobby, and it's got, like, an Indiana Jones fucking poster in the office, and you could see a VHS copy of, I think, The Exterminator. Might be Exterminator 2, you know. You can see the fucking Canon film logo on the fucking box. And those little things are like cute little winks and nods to the fucking audience and people, you know, but it's like, 
It's like, don't remind me of better movies unless your movie is that good. I mean, it's because it, it, then it's awkward and distracting. Like in I Was a Teenage Zombie, when they made a Lloyd Kaufman reference, they, I mean, Lloyd Kaufman is not Stanley Kubrick. You know, he's not, you know, the Coen brothers, you know, with all due respect to Lloyd Kaufman. Because I'm sure Lloyd Kaufman, if he really wanted to, a long time ago, he could have went into Hollywood and became incredibly successful, but he decided to stay independent, and I respect him massively for that. But it's not like they were, you know, shouting out some, like, really famous fucking name or something, you know? They decided to be like, Lloyd Kaufman, we're just going to... Lloyd Kaufman, that's good. But Frankenstein, Day of the Beast, just remind that's the whole thing if this whole thing is if this whole movie is supposed to be like it's like fan service for fans of the genre it's like that like that the name of that movie is just distracting you know it's like you know you're already thinking about other movies in the genre you're already thinking about like demons and demons 2 and Day of the Beast, the movie in the the movie in the movies called Frankenstein Day of the Beast, and that reminds me of uh, Alex de Iglesias' Day of the Beast, which is a fucking amazing movie. I don't remind me of a better movie. Um, <laughs> Frankenstein. I'm already thinking about Frankenstein movies that are better written movies. I'm reminded of Scream Two, which it's like. You know, I, I, I don't know. I could see some people being very snooty about this film. Like, oh, well, this isn't this isn't a Saw film. This isn't like one of those dumb Scream movies. This is, this is like a modern day callback to the giallos of, of the 70s and the 80s. And like, I don't know. If there's something very like smell your own fart snooty fucking cool guy reekiness and just something about this movie that I'm just like this seems like a too cool for school fucking movie but it's like it's not it's just it's not I mean what else I was reminded of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street because on the screen I think it was at the end of the actual of the end of the of Frankenstein Day of the Beast so the movie within the movie Um, the credits were rolling and in like the center of the screen, you could see a name, um, it says like starring Tim Kruger as the monster. Actually, I think that was in the beginning credits. I was like Tim Kruger as the monster. And I was like, that's when I was like, is, is this movie supposed to be real or is it fake? Because nobody... Who's going to put just, like, Tim Kruger as the monster? That's just so on the nose. And there's another name. Debbie Ramey. Like, really? Debbie Ramey. I don't know. Just names like that, I feel like the director of this was, like... Like, I feel like they think that I was going to think that that was some sort of... That, that that was cool, or maybe they thought it was going to be some kind of subconscious 
thing that the audience would somehow glob onto this movie because it reminds them of better horror movies somehow. I don't know. There was something fucking fishy about it, but I looked it up and it's a fucking actual real movie. And I think the director of Frankenstein day of the beast, the the director of that is actually the killer in this movie. So the, the guy who is the killer in the last matinee is the director of Frankenstein day of the beast. But it has this weird meta quality because I think that's just, I don't know, that's just a happy coincidence, I think. I don't think they were trying to, the movie wasn't trying to say that like, oh, the director of the movie that everyone's watching is now killing everyone in the theater. I don't think they were trying to say that. Unless they make a sequel to this and then they they just use that as like, oh yes, that's... <coughs> That's our catalyst to make a fucking sequel because that's what we were doing the whole time. And it's like, no, you weren't. That's not what you're doing the whole time. It'd be ma- mean to say that this is like a clueless, cynical waste of location and talent. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's not even the strongest attempt at style over substance. Because it, like, it looks good, but it's not like, you know... It's so visually stunning that there was just no effort put into story. It's sort of like everything looks fine, and the story is like, I under, I, I get it, but there was just there just it wasn't it was like shallow. There wasn't a lot there. I feel at one point I, I was kind of I was like okay. The second I feel that I'm kind of like losing attention on the movie where I feel like I start looking away from the screen or if I start wanting to look at my phone or something, I'm, I'm just going to like keep note of like when that moment happens. And it's, it was like 59 minutes into the movie. So I feel like if the movie was... maybe just barely over an hour long. Like, and the story was tightened up a little bit. I, I think it could have been a lot better movie, but it went on for another 20 minutes, 20, 21 minutes. So it was like, I don't know. The movie was, I didn't feel, I, I felt like it was just a little bit too long. I feel like I could have been a little bit shorter and a little tighter. Um, soundtrack is decent. It's, it's generic. It's like a generic eighties synthy type of thing going on. But I thought it was, you know, it's not, I didn't think it was bad. You know, I'm, I'm glad that the music was there. I didn't find it. Um, again, it's like one of those things where it's like fans of the genre. Like people are keen on soundtracks and scores and shit like that. You know, people like, especially horror fans, like they will buy the soundtrack to a, a horror film. They'll, you know, it'll be on their fucking iTunes. It'll, they will buy vinyl copies of it and listen to it and enjoy it. You know, it's like John Carpenter's probably like the best 
example of that or tangerine dream is or goblin very good example of like people who made music that are just sort of known for being in horror movies or uh what was it when i watched willow <laughs> going all the way bringing it all the way back to willow uh willow no i'm sorry not willow um it was uh the princess bride excuse me the Princess Bride, the, uh, the music was done by Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. You know, fucking the Sultan's a swing, fucking money for nothing and your chicks for free, all that shit. That guy wrote the, you know, the, the music for The Princess Bride. Crazy, right? And it's actually good. It's like sweet, corny, romantic 80s fucking music, but it's, you know... I got a soft spot for that type of shit. But, yeah, I mean, so yeah, the soundtrack in The Last Matinee was like, it was fine, you know? It's one of those movies that had like flashes of brilliance. And this this is like this director's like, like solo directorial debut. Like, I think he direct he co-directed some other movie before this and then he did a bunch of like short films. So this is like his first kind of time like it's just him like in charge of everything and and I see flashes of brilliance but I think it's going to be one of those things where this dude needs to get needs to have like people writing for him and there's there's no fucking shame in that I mean Fucking great directors do that all the time. They they leave writing and screenplays and shit to people who are like that's what they do. That's what they're the best at. And then what they do is fucking make it visually happen. So I don't know. I feel like if this dude had some writers working for him, I don't know. His second film will be even better. But I don't know. I see flashes of of brilliance in this dude, like, <coughs> excuse me, you know, he's got the, he's got aesthetics and, um, to some degree tone, you know, shit like that, but it's like, I don't know, this movie was, I don't know, it, it just did not completely come together for me, like, visually, I thought it was shot very decent, like it, like it looks fine, and but the story just left me wondering, like what happened, you know? You know, most of the characters were one dimensional, and I just didn't care about their deaths, which is like what's new about fucking uh, horror movies. Like this movie supposed to takes place in it's, it's supposed it takes place in ninety three. And, you know, horror movies from, like, the 80s and 90s is, like, yeah, you need to have, you need to have a bunch of, like, disposable people who just get murdered just so you can establish that the fucking killer is dangerous. And then eventually you start killing people who, you know, you form a relationship with. Like, you're, like, you know, so when they die, you're, like, surprised. You're, like, oh, no! And that sort of ups the stakes from there. Because you're, like, well, if, if such and such person can die, then our hero can probably, might die. And now I'm extra worried about the hero. So it's like, but there's some, like all these characters, I just didn't give a fuck when they got killed. I was just like, okay. 
Um, <laughs> uh, the the main the the last girl, the main character Anna. I was sympathetic. She, she came off as a sympathetic character to me. Um, you know, I thought her character was fine, and as like a final girl, I was like, oh yeah, just that totally makes sense. Like she fits the mold, and that's cool. And but everyone else, it was just like everyone just seems so disposable. And it's one thing if you have disposable characters, but disposable characters who get killed in a slasher film, it's like what you do, when you don't have time to devote to establishing a character and then killing the character. Like, slasher movies tend to make up for that by, like, okay, we're going to have, like, a disposable person who's just going to get fucking killed, but we're going to make the kill look cool. It's going to look awesome and fantastical, or it's going to be or it's gonna be very gory, or it's going to look crazy, or something. And really, like, most of the kills in the, like, um, one of the first kills the usher guy who they for like a second set up that like, maybe this guy, this guy, maybe he's acting weird. Maybe he's the killer. I don't know, but yeah, you find out right away that he's not the killer. Um, he goes outside to have a cigarette and the killer fucking snatches him up and he slits his throat with a fucking, he slits his throat and it's a great effect because you can see him cut his neck and you see blood shoot out of the guy's neck hole, but you also see the cigarette smoke kind of pour out of it because he was in mid drag off his cigarette. And I was like, oh, that's pretty clever. That's a clever kill right there. And that, and then like immediately after that, that's when he rolls the uh, metal security doors down and snaps the lock off. So. And that's in the beginning of the movie. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this movie's going to have some good kills in it. And then, like, as the kills went on, I'm just like, eh. They're kind of boring and not interesting. And they're killing characters I don't really feel worried for at all. But, um, but hey, if you're, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're maybe not the biggest horror fan in the world, but you like to watch new movies and maybe you like to watch, like, foreign films or whatever, check out the last matinee. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to watch it again. I already watched it twice (laughs) to prepare for this episode. Excuse me. Excuse me. I almost forgot I had COVID. Um, (laughs) but, um, you know, if you, you know, you want to, if you're sitting at home and you want to watch a horror movie and you want to watch something that, you know, is visually, visually kind of cool and, you know, it kind of, it's kind of hollers back at old Giallo films where all the killers wear black leather gloves and, you know, but it, it but it has a lot of like, you know, you know, American slasher killer elements to it as well. Like check out the last matinee. It's not terribly expensive to rent. Um, I do, <laughs> but I, I mean, I thought it was like, okay, I, I'm not a giant fan. 
another thing I want to point out is in the beginning, the opening, not the opening credits, but you know, in the beginning of the movie, they'll just be like, oh, here's, here's all the companies that made this movie possible. You know, it's like, it's like if you watch an American movie and it'll be like, like if you're watching fucking a Disney movie or Star Wars movie or something, it'll say like Lucasfilm logo comes on the screen. Okay, and then that fades to black, and then fucking Disney logo comes up on the screen, fades to black, and then the movie begins. Okay, that like that makes sense. This movie had so many fucking companies involved with it, like it was like a joke. Okay, I so I went back. I went the second time I watched it. I went back and counted. There was, let me double check my counting here, 14 separate company logos that came onto the screen, one after the other. And not quickly either. It was like such and such company, Argentina, fade to black, such and such company, Uruguay, and then such and such fucking media company it's like it kept going forever it was like watching the eyeball eating scene where you're just like holy fuck get to the goddamn point (laughs) that's the thing if there's like you know eight eight of like movie company things come up you're like come on just start the fucking movie but once you get to like 13 like you stop being mad and it becomes funny so it's like, uh, what was it, the like Grindhouse movies, the uh, Robert Rodriguez Tarantino movies where they had the like fake trailers, like they had the one for Machete, and that actually became a real movie. And there was, uh, what was it, there was the, a movie called Don't, which is a play on all the Don't movies, like Don't Go in the Basement, Don't Go in the House, Don't Look Now, Don't, all, all those movies, those don't, don't, don't movies. And then there was uh, Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS with and and starring Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu. And it's like, that's what, that's what this felt like. Except instead of actually showing the trailer, it just shows the name of the fucking movie companies. For, for... <laughs> Just show like 30 in a row. They don't even need to be real companies. Just be like such and such entertainment to fade to black. Such and such production company fade to black. And just keep doing that for like 20 minutes. Hilarious. Anyways, I don't want to talk about The Last Matinee anymore. If you want to check out The Last Matinee, go ahead. Watch the trailer. The, the, the trailer will totally fucking trick you into seeing it. And I don't know. I thought it was like, okay. I actually preferred I Was a Teenage Zombie to The Last Matinee. Just out of pure entertainment. In terms in, in terms of being invested. Like, The Last Matinee is clearly a better made movie. Visually, like, the kills, things like that. But it's like... Well, actually, no. I, I would argue that the... Because, the, I mean, the best kill in... Last matinee is when dude gets his throat cut and the fucking cigarette smoke comes out. Like, that's a pretty good kill, but 
the dude getting his face ripped off in I Was a Teenage Zombie, I was like, I would say that that's a better kill. Like, yeah, I would say it, it was it was horrifying, but it was also, like, really funny at the same time. Anyways. <laughs> Let's, let's let's get into something more serious. I want to move on to the year of two thousand one. We're gonna we're gonna get into a documentary titled Orozco, the Embalmer, directed by Kiyotaka Surisaki. And Surisaki, the self-professed corpse photographer whose images of death and conflict from global hotspots such as Russia and Thailand, Palestine, and Colombia, where this documentary takes place. In 1996, uh, Kiyotaka Surisaki traveled to El Cartucho, which is a street in the neighborhood of San Ynez in Bogota, Colombia. So it's like this one street in this like shady neighborhood, but there's this one street that's especially bad. And this is in this is in Bogota. It's an area so deeply poisoned by drug trafficking and poverty and violence. It's like if you remember, remember the uh, the uh, the autonomous zone in Seattle during 2020. It was called Chad, and then it was called Chop. Remember that, where they just blocked off like ten blocks in Seattle and made a fucking anti-government hippie commune where people were like fucking shooting each other. <laughs> And scaring the fuck out of anyone who dared to previously own a house there. It's like if you took that place and you 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 gathered everyone up there and you gathered up everyone in Skid Row of LA and you took all the fucking uh, criminals who were murdering people in Chicago. You took all of them and you mixed them up. <laughs> You mix them up in a bag, and then you just dump them into fucking the middle of the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Like, that's how bad this area of Bogota was. It was... it. There's shit online that... About this area and how it kind of became that way. That is an absolute nightmare to read about. It's fascinating, but it's horrifying. It's, I mean, a a, a great sci-fi dystopian writer couldn't write shit to this horrifying. Um, <clears throat> and you can look up a lot of this stuff. Uh, basically, there was this, and it's actually, it's very applicable to things now. Uh, there was this thing called the La Valencia. It was basically this, there was a politician that was assassinated in Colombia back in like the, I think it was the fifties or sixties. And 
there was basically riots on the streets between liberals and conservatives. And there were riots that basically just destroyed, uh, destroyed the city. And especially, and after the riots, basically all the crime and poverty and shit just got kind of filtered into this area. And then just crime and urban decay, just, it just became this fucking ghetto for misery. There, there's shit online that's absolutely fucking horrifying about that place. So if you want to look up that, uh, look that up, you can look up the uh, El Cartucho, as it's referred to. El Cartucho. There's a, <coughs> and then there's like weird shit. Like there's an urban legend that the uh, El Cartucho got so bad that someone brought a fucking crocodile and stored it in the basement of a, like, some fucking building. And, <laughs> and they would feed the remains of people who died of drug overdoses and people who were murdered in the area because people were dying of drug overdoses and getting murdered constantly. And by the time this documentary was made, it was the same thing. Like there, you would just walk down the street and there's just fucking random bodies all over town, especially in this neighborhood. So, um, (laughs) that's the folklore. I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody brought a crocodile and kept it in this enclosure in a fucking basement somewhere in the El Cartucho. And, um, fed it the bodies of people who died, who OD'd, and uh, murder victims. I thought it was funny. The crocodile's name was Pepe. <laughs> they named him Pepe. You know, just this, just stories like that. Like, yeah, it, it was interesting reading. I'll probably go back and read about more of that area because, I mean, we don't, you know, I don't think most people know a lot about Colombia. They all, everything you ever hear about Colombia is like, in fucking Scarface or Narcos, <laughs> you know, it's always some like drug fucking drug cartel related shit, you know? Um, but it's like, how did it get that way? You know, it's like finding out how it became that way. I, I found just researching for this episode to be, pretty fascinating, but I don't want to go too far on a tangent with that. I just want to kind of stick to the movie. So we're introduced to our Mr. Uh, Freilin Orozco Duarte, the titular Orozco, the embalmer. And he is our main, our main character. It's a, (laughs) it's a documentary. He's, he's, He's the focal point in the documentary. And the documentary doesn't have much narrative per se. It's it's more of like it's just a camera watching a man work. And and like and in that you get a sense of the reality. Excuse me. You get a sense of the reality of the situation. And the story just kind of tells itself. Um so uh Froilin Orozco, I'm just going to call him Orozco, was a former police inspector turned embalmer 
Um, by the time this movie was made, <clears throat> he left the police force and had been an embalmer for, I believe, three decades. And Orozco has embalmed the bodies of the dead in his modest, ill-equipped space uh, for the better part of three decades. And uh, something like over 50,000 corpses have landed on his embalming table. And he works alone. Like, this is a tiny space. It's the size of... It's, probably, it's about the size of your bathroom. Maybe smaller. It's a very small working space. And it's... You can tell it's as as nice as he can make it, but it's, uh, it's nothing that we would consider to be, you know, up to, <laughs> uh, up to any kind of standard, you know, uh, it's not really up to the standard of anywhere really, but you could tell he makes do with what he has. Yeah. 50,000 corpses. That's one guy. That's, that's crazy. And, and there's in the in the documentary really comes off like like it may be exploitive, but really it's like this guy was giving every last every last human that came across his table like one last shred of like dignity before they were put in the earth forever, you know, in this sort of crime war torn chaotic place where death is everywhere all the time. And there's this one guy who's giving people the dignity and death of being preserved and presented and placed in a coffin so that they can have funeral service. It's a, it says a lot about the guy really. Uh, I mean, you know, he has like dull, rusty tools. You know, he's he's like stuffing people with rags and couch cushion filling and <laughs> the, the the film shows his work in the most blunt, honest and to the point um way it possibly can. Like you ever wonder what uh, Dr. Michael uh, Baden was doing on the HBO show Autopsy from the 90s. HBO's was the shit back in the 90s. It, it was absolutely the shit. You had... If you ever watched fucking Autopsy, Dr. Michael Baden, that motherfucker appears... Like, that motherfucker, he's still alive, and he appears fucking all, all over the place, but in the 90s, he had this... Uh, this like reoccurring show called autopsy that was on uh, HBO and it was like, he's like a medical examiner guy. So yeah, it's, it's good shit. Check it out. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he'll pop up on the news every once in a while. They're just like, Oh, we need to talk to a fucking, we need to talk to a medical examiner about something. And then they'll do a split screen and then Michael Bond just appears. Anyways, uh, but you never actually see what that dude does. He just kind of describes what he does. But this is like, yeah, 
But he's more of an examiner. He's not like preparing bodies for a funeral or anything like that. But you, uh, when you witness Orozco embalming many bodies, men, women, children, you watch him do his work like one static shot a lot of the time. Um, and it's very matter of fact and it's difficult to watch. You know, it's very shocking. And, but this, it's, this movie is a very, very mondo slice of cinema verite at the, at its heart. Um, because it, it, I mean, it's, it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not really, it's not like an exploitation film, you know what I mean? It's, you're, it's showing a hard working, honest man doing a job that most people would rather not think about. It doesn't matter where you're from. Like this is a, like who takes on this type of job, you know? Yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't find that. I know this movie's can be filed under, you know, extreme documentary, shockumentary, mondo film, but I don't, I don't think it's, I don't find it to be exploitative. I mean, it, it, it's, it's shocking and it's hard to look at, but it's real. You know, it's, it's, it's no more different than watching medical footage. To, to me, it's kind of like the film, which isn't a documentary, but it's it's but it's I, f- I feel like it's in the same realm of a movie called uh, Men Behind the Sun. It's and Men Men Behind the Sun was um, isn't necessarily an ex an exploitative depiction of the cruel imperial Japanese medical experiment camps in World War II. It just shows the truth and the truth isn't always pretty. You know, it's... And I've seen, you know, things... I've seen, like, interviews with the director of Man Behind the Sun and he's just like, you know, his movie gets pegged as, like, you know, being in the same, you know, realm of, like, I don't know, martyrs or a Serbian film or something. And it's really not. It's, it's, it's a historical film. It's like a more, it's like a, it's, it's like a more violent Schindler's list from the perspective of a, you know, Japanese camp. That's goal is to perform experimentation on captured Chinese and Soviet prisoners and it's cruel and it's brutal and it's disgusting, but it's also, it's, these are things that actually happen to people. And it's, I think it's important to not forget that the, horrible, not to forget the horrible things that have happened in history. That's, (laughs) I'll just say that because, you know, um, well, I think Jim Jones said it best. Those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And I know he probably didn't coin that. I'm sure someone else said it before, but, (laughs) 
Anyways, during the making of this documentary, um, uh, Froilan Orozco Duarte died. He actually passed away during the documentary. Like, you don't see it or anything like that. But he died from um, what friends of his and associates um, explained. He had complications from an untreated hernia and kidney disease, it sounds like. And the hernia is thought to be from lifting corpses day in and day out because he'll he'll work on he'll work on his um he'll work on a corpse clean him up um cut him open you know preserve their insides and sew them back together put clothes on them put makeup on them if they have if he has to and comb their hair, and then he needs to, like, lift them from the table and place them into the coffin. And he does it by himself. And it's fucking, you know, it's jarring when you see him do it because the way he moves them from one, from the table to the coffin. So the coffin is sat on the floor, and the table is, like, this weird metal grated thing that they sit on, or lay on, rather. And he basically will take a belt that he keeps hanging on the wall. He'll wrap the belt around the cadaver's neck, you know, and he'll, so he has control over the head with holding a belt and then he'll grab onto like their torso. And then in one movement, he'll just lift turn and then drop them into the, uh, into the coffin. So it's thought that just doing that for, you know, years for decades, he ended up developing in a uh, hernia that went untreated and that coupled with some type of untreated kidney disease, he, uh, he got sick and he died. His, uh, there's a, there's a scene afterwards where his assistant, this young guy, you know, he's probably in his early twenties and he was his assistant and, and friends of his had only kind words to say about him. And his assistant was really like um, complimentary. And, you know, he was like, you know, he was like, you know, this guy was my, my boss, my master. You know, he was, he taught me everything I know. And, you know, he was always very kind to people and, you know, I'll never forget him and I'll miss him. Like, you know, he was, this is a guy who was like appreciated by people and it just kind of makes the documentary that much like this weird, it's this weird mix of flavors. You get, get all this, this, you know, the shock of all these dead bodies and, you know, the um, shots of the neighborhood they're in, which is you know, it looks like looks like Death Wish Three. You know, it's just bombed out buildings and just filth everywhere, and homeless people on the street. Like, well, it looks like San Francisco now. That's what it looks like. And even though he died, you know, and that's kind of a that's kind of a it's kind of a sad, shocking end to the documentary. But it's like, you know, it's. 
people who cared about him actually had a minute to stand in front of a camera and express what he meant to them, you know? So, you know, I find this, this, I find it makes this documentary very, it's, it's, it's strange, you know, cause it's not quite, you know, shockumentary, but it's, it's like half shockumentary, half, I don't know, it's, it's like Jiro dreams of sushi, but with like dead people instead of fish. <laughs> Oh God. So, um, so Roscoe died. He, he wasn't even embalmed. Ironically, he didn't get embalmed. And, uh, the end credits say that, um, he doesn't even have a grave. So I can only attribute that to maybe the extreme poverty of the area. Maybe he didn't have family that, you know, could have a funeral service for him or, I don't know what the circumstances were for that. The movie doesn't really uh, specify, but, um, but yeah, that's Roscoe dies. And that's, that's the end of the documentary. And, uh, I like this a lot. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult to sit through, but it's fascinating to see a part of the world where things like this are actually happening. Like it's sometimes you just want to watch something that's real. And, you know, a lot of documentaries have, they're not really documentaries. You know, there there's the filmmaker's narrative is, 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 is laced through it where you can't separate the reality from what the director wants you to see and hear. And I mean, this movie is about as honest as a documentary as you can get, you know, to be honest. So now, I'd like to thank two very special people. Mr. Coop and Miss Katie. I was sitting at home with the uh, with the COVID and they hit me up on the grams. And they were like, uh, can we get you anything? And I was kind of half joking. I was like, I want, I want a Gatorade. Bring me some Gatorade. And they were like, sure, we'll bring you some Gatorade. And they brought me a giant Walmart bag full of fucking Gatorade. And they also enclosed a card. And the card I will read for you now. The card is a, it's, it's a white card with, um, pictures of sand dollars on it. And it says forever in our hearts. And then when you open it, it says, sorry for your loss. (laughs) Sorry for your loss of manhood, you COVID-having bastard. We love you. Get well soon. (sighs) With friends like these, right? Very kind. Really made my day. 
gonna put this card next to my Christmas tree. So, thank you, Coop. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate it. And without any further ado, let's move on to our final movie for this episode. Oh my God. Now I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm kicking around. I was kicking around the idea of doing another Christmas film. I did Christmas evil last episode, which great movie. If you haven't seen it, if you, if you've seen every Christmas movie and you just don't think that there's any good ones left, go see Christmas evil. If you like horror movies, if you like psychological horror, if you like Christmas, Christmas Evil is wonderful. And um, I was going to do, well, I was considering doing a Christmas movie for this episode, but I figured, how about a movie that has snow in it? How about that? Is that close enough? And, uh, I don't know. Well, what happened was, is I was sitting around with some people and, uh, we watched home alone <laughs> and, um, we're watching home alone. And I was like, I mean, home alone, home alone's a fine Christmas movie, but it's not the best McCulloch Culkin film. Not even close. Um, the best Macaulay Culkin film is 1993's The Good Son. Same director as uh, The Stepfather, if you remember that film from 1987. Terrifying film. And The Good Son, if you haven't seen it, <clears throat> uh, stars a... Uh, young Macaulay Culkin and a young Elijah Wood. And Elijah Wood is plays the character of Mark. And Mark is 12. And even though he looks 10 tops in, in this. But Mark is 12 and his mom just died. His dad, who obviously is in mourning of his departed wife, needs... He needs to be there for Mark and has an opportunity to <clears throat> has an opportunity that he business opportunity that he can't pass up in Japan selling used uh, panty vending machines a venture that will have Mark and his dad set for life you know it comes at an awkward time but so Mark goes to stay with his uncle Wallace, who, who's his dad's uh, brother, and his aunt Susan. And they have two kids. Uh, they have a daughter named Connie, and her brother is Henry, played by Macaulay Culkin. Um, and he is creepy and evil. And uh, just a reminder, this is, the, this is the 90s, the decade of rich white people with rich white people problems, but they're somehow relatable. It's like most nineties movies, you know, the eighties had some of that 
too, but it's really the nineties or it's just like, (laughs) where where you get tricked into relating with the people of extreme privilege somehow, somehow, you know, ever since reality television came along, reality television, uh, makes a clear distinction that like you are not rich and you never will be rich. So your consolation prize is to sit on your futon in your living room, in your shitty apartment and watch rich people act like retards and get paid for it. So, but in the nineties, they actually, you know, movies and television shows went to, uh, the effort to craft story around, uh, you know, characters. And, um, so the fact that they were wealthy or of a above middle income wasn't, didn't even factor into the story a lot of times. Like if you were a fan of the show party of five or, um, Mrs. Doubtfire, like these are the these people in these show in these movies and shows are kind of a lot of fucking money, but you, you don't really notice it too much because there's a story going on. So, or like Home Alone. Home Alone's a good example. A very uh, a f- a rich white family in a giant fucking nice neighborhood who all go to Paris. For Christmas. It's like. That's about as first fucking world as you can get right there. And the only one. The only person who has any self-awareness. Is the older brother Buzz. Who is probably the best character in Home Alone. He's definitely the funniest. And. He has one line of dialogue. Where. They're in Paris. Macaulay Culkin is Home Alone. And his sister, I think it's his sister, is like talking to Buzz like, you know, like, oh, he's home alone. He's so small and useless. Like, what if, you know, you know, what if something happens to him? And and Buzz is like, nothing's going to happen to him. We live in the most boring, nothing fucking happens, privileged neighborhood in America where nothing ever happens. And that's like the only time the movie looks at you and like winks. And is a little self-aware. I like that moment. So, Henry, who uh, is Macaulay Culkin, takes Mark, Elijah Wood. Henry takes Mark to a, like, warehouse factory thing place. And they're just hanging out, being boys. And they start throwing rocks through the windows of the uh, of the warehouse. Which, you know, to be fair, it looks kind of abandoned, um, sort of. And so <laughs> anything that looks mildly abandoned, like boy, the young boys will go and destroy, whether if it's a fucking house, a car, anything. So, <laughs> so they're sitting there just throwing rocks through this fucking, the windows of this warehouse. And it, it looks like, it looks like the place where the dude in RoboCop that gets all fucked up from toxic waste and then gets ran over by red foreman. It looks like that. You know, rascally boy shit. 
um, that everyone has done. That's kind of what they're establishing with this scene that like, Oh, they're just, this is boys being boys, you know, you know, they're doing shit they shouldn't be doing, but it's essentially harmless. They establish there's, um, what else? There's, they establish there's a steep, a steep ass cliff that Henry's mom goes to to remember her dead son Richard, who drowned in the tub. He was like a like a baby. Um, spoilers: Henry did it. <laughs> Henry drowned him in the fucking bathtub. Um. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's when you know you're rich. If you when you have a your own cliff you can go to and just look out upon the uh, Atlantic Ocean and you can just contemplate your life. That's when you know you're doing pretty good. <clears throat> um, so there's a there's a bunch of scenes that basically establish they sort of increment quickly but incrementally show like the boys getting into more and more mischief. Um, and it escalates very quickly. Like, <clears throat> so there's like this mean dog in the neighborhood and, you know, it chases the two boys at one point and they get away. And well, Henry made a gun that shoots steel bolts in this little shed on his family's property. That's when you know you got a lot of money too. When you have your own wooded area with a, uh, Ted Kaczynski shack on the property that you're just completely unaware of. That's when you know you, you, you're doing all right. I, I wish I can get to that point someday. That'd be great. So Henry makes this, this weird like DIY gun that just shoots bolts. And he, um, Henry shoots the mean dog, you know, and it establishes that like, Oh, yeah, Henry uh, Macaulay Culkin is um, like he's a total psychopath, and he'll just kill animals. And you know, anyone who's mildly into serial killers at all knows that you know serial killers tend to start at a young age, and they tend to start with small prey like animals before they work up to larger prey like people and elephants and blue whales. You know, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so there's, you know, Henry shoots the mean dog and it's a terrible scene. Uh, he makes Mark help him dispose of the dog's body. Like there's a little well that Henry likes to go to to smoke cigarettes. It's in a cemetery. And <laughs> he, he makes Elijah Wood fucking help him take the dog's body of this well and just dump the body and... Um, there's another scene where Henry shows, uh, Mark this, this thing he calls Mr. Highway and Mr. Highway is like an adult human sized dummy that's like wearing clothes and stuff. And the purpose for this is, um, so that they can throw it, Mr. Mr. Highway, they can throw him off an overpass, um, onto the road below where there's traffic and cause a 10 car pile up and a bunch of people to go to the hospital. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's not good. That's that things are escalating. So since there's like no one 
around apparently school's not in session so there's there's really no one else around for our character mark to talk to his dad's in japan selling his uh used panty vending machine company and you know he's got his uh his uncle wallace who is um, i guess he's a doctor i suppose i think that's what he is um, but he's occupied with work constantly and his, and his aunt Susan have no idea what she does. I assume she's a stay at home mom, but she kind of consumes a lot of her time. Just like, you know, being depressed about her dead kid. And, um, that's a bummer. <laughs> so basically, well, what I'm saying is there's basically no one really around, so they introduce this character who's like this dumb bitch child therapist named Mrs. Davenport, which is like a completely unnecessary character, I think. Um, I mean, it could have been a... The character could have been written a whole lot better. So Mark gets set to talk with this old bag and... Um, he gets, you know, he gets sent to go talk with her, which is good, you know. His mom just died and everything. and um, So it's probably a good idea that he goes talk to a therapist, right? Wrong. Uh, <laughs> they have this psychotic fucking, there's a scene where they have this psychotic conversation that goes like this, okay? <clears throat> Mark asks, um, like, what makes people evil? And she says, well, evil's a word that people use when they've given up understanding it's it's like bitch just say you don't know <laughs> then she asks mark like well do you think you're evil because you let your mother die you know that's not true it's like who fucking forms a question like that it's like, <laughs> like where did you get your fucking degree also, bitch, just say you don't know. I don't know, like, I don't know what makes people evil. I want you to say that. Although you should know. You're a therapist. You should have some sort of basic knowledge of, like, contributing factors that makes uh, people who ultimately commit evil acts, like, what kind of got them there. But you just, Or you're just lazy and you just didn't feel like answering a straightforward question. So Mark goes on to say, like, okay, what if there's this boy who did terrible things because they because he liked doing terrible things? Uh, would you say that he is evil? And then Miss Davenport replies, I don't believe in evil. She says with this dead-eyed Richard Kuklinski look on her fucking on her big dumb learned face ugh Miss Davenport sucks Richard Kuklinski the Iceman again let's circle right, right back around to uh, 90's HBO Richard Kuklinski he was a he was a he was a hitman for the uh Gambino crime family. 
and uh, he did two HBO specials, like interviews from prison. Uh, One was called The Iceman Tapes, A Conversation with a Killer, and the other one was the, uh, what was it, Iceman Confessional? I think it was called, yeah. Oh, it was like Iceman Confessions of a Mafia Hitman, and that came out like a few years later. Actually, came out like fuck. That came out like ten years later, I think, something like that. I don't know if it was still in the nineties or maybe it was early two thousands, but that's a that's another thing I bring up all the fucking time. It's like in the nineties, the culture of the serial killer was still a thing that exists. Serial killers don't exist anymore. And no one thinks that's weird. It's like, serial killers didn't go away. They're still around. There's new ones doing all kinds of creative, fucking horrific things that we just never hear about. We're just la-di-da. We're we're all just on TikTok and fucking (laughs) completely oblivious. Like, it's like, I I really think people are missing the fucking, you're really, people are really missing it. You know, there's, there's still serial killers out there to be publicly examined and have books written about and have, um, things like the Iceman tapes (laughs) made for, uh, HBO. God damn it. HBO was great back in the day. You know, you had Oz and. Sopranos. What was it? Pimps up, hose down. <laughs> oh my god! HBO boxing. Oh my god! I think they still do that. Anyways, um, <laughs> what the fuck was I? Oh yes, yes. Uh, anyways, uh, <clears throat> so uh, so there's a scene where Macaulay Culkin. Uh, Henry tries to kill his uh, sister, and um, actually, his sister is played by Quinn Culkin, who's Macaulay Culkin's sister, and even Rory Culkin, um, Macaulay Culkin's brother, is in this as well. He's he's in it very briefly. He actually he's not even. It's only a picture of him. There's a photo of the deceased. Brother Richard, and the 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 picture of Richard is actually Rory Culkin, just holding a rubber ducky. So, <laughs> the Culkin parents were making a fucking fortune off these kids. They would just fucking stack their kids into a fucking movie like firewood. Good for them. Well, until Macaulay Culkin fucking sued his fucking parents and. Get, so, you know. Anyway, so uh, let's jump ahead to uh, Henry takes his sister, Connie, takes Connie out to this ice, um, this is like ice skating uh, local spot. It's a, it's like a local frozen pond and that's kind of where everyone goes to go ice skating. And they're holding hands and they're skating around and around and Henry uh, starts picking up speed and Connie's laughing and having a good old time and they're skating and skating in a circle round and round. And at one point Henry, uh, lets go of her and they picked up so much speed and he 
when he lets go, it like flings her into a blocked off part of the pond. Like it's taped off. Like she just flies right through that. And into an area where the ice is thin and cracked and people aren't supposed to go over there. And Connie gets flung in that direction. She falls, eats shit, and slides to a stop on the thin ice. So she gets back up to her feet just in time to hear the ice start to crack and buckle, and the ice breaks. She falls in. Mark, who who rushed to save her, is uh, being held back by some rando in the crowd. <clears throat> Henry crawls. Um, he crawls out onto the ice, uh, out to the hole, and Connie's sitting there right at the surface of the water, like kicking and screaming. She's she's drowning. You know, it's frozen water, and she's yelling for Henry to help her. And she, uh, Connie's drowning, and she's she reaches out for uh, Henry, and. <laughs> Henry reaches his hand out like just out of reach so that she can't reach his hand. And uh, so he's basically just, he's like on his belly reaching out over, over her as she's drowning. And he's just like Hitler saluting over his drowning sister. And um, under she goes, <laughs> she goes under and then, um, but she don't worry. She ends up getting rescued. Uh, some dudes with axes come and chop open the ice and pull her out, and um, she ends up going to the hospital. She's don't worry. She's fine. Uh, and after that, um, Aunt Susan goes up to her uh, her uh, meditative uh, thinking cliff, <laughs> and. Um, and Mark goes uh, to her and is like, hey, um, I don't think what happened to Connie was an accident. I think fucking Henry tried to uh, tried to kill her. And, and Aunt Susan just... And Aunt Susan just slaps the shit out of Mark. And, um, you know, because... She slaps the shit out of Mark and, you know, she's... Because at this point, you know, Henry's like the perfect golden child. She's not going to sit here and be told that her uh, that her perfect baby boy tried to murder her, you know, her youngest daughter. So, so now Mark's in a weird position now because he knows uh, Henry fucking Macaulay Culkin is fucking evil. And he's totally evil in front of Mark, you know, but it's like... He's got the whole, he's got everyone fooled. He's got Miss Davenport fooled. He's got his parents fooled. He's got everyone fooled. But shit is escalating. So, I mean, this all has to come to an end somewhere, right? So, also, I was watching the making of The Good Son, and it's fucking hilarious because the way they made this movie, you just could not make this movie nowadays the way they made it. It would be fucking impossible. Uh, there's too many scenes of like, <laughs> like I'm pretty sure the scene where Connie falls through the fucking ice, like they, I think they like chopped a hole in the fucking ice and then just dropped this little girl into the fucking water. 
Because when you see like the scene where she's drowning, there's all these sort of like overhead rotating shots where it's like, well, she's clearly in the water and the camera would move in such a way where it's like, yep, they're not on a soundstage. They are in the middle of a pond surrounded by snow. And and there's a bunch of scenes where the kids are fucking like, they're hanging off very incredibly high heights. Like, and you're like, oh, that must be a stunt double. And, you know, the making of his hilarious director's like, no, we didn't use stunt doubles. We thought it would be better if it was the actual, uh, we had the actual children do all their own fucking dangerous stunts. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Just, just come, just reckless endangerment. It's fucking great. The nineties were wonderful. Um, anyways, there, there's this fucking scene where, um, they're in Henry's clubhouse. Henry's clubhouse, by the way, is in, it's a tree. It's a tree house. Really? It's, and it's, and a really fucking tall tree. Yes, the scene in the fucking clubhouse where fucking Macaulay Culkin's like, you know, you could tell anyone you want about me, but they're not going to believe you because uh, no one's going to believe that I'm some fucking crazy person. So you might as well just like stop telling everybody. And, you know, um, It's like, it's like, especially my mom, my mom's definitely not going to believe you. And he's like, well, she's my mom now. And, and Macaulay Culkin's like, what the fuck did you say? Did you say, bro? He's like, okay, well, they, they kind of establish, it's like weird, but like they establish that uh, when Elijah Wood's mom died, when she was on her deathbed, she's basically like, when I die, like I'll come back from beyond the grave, I'll come back in the form of some person or something and you'll like, you'll know when it happens and whatever. So Elijah Wood uh, talks himself into uh, that. His aunt Susan is basically his, his mom reincarnated. So that's cool. You know, he's, he's coping. Okay. He's a kid who lost his fucking mom. Okay. But he's basically like, well, you know, she, you know, she's like, my mom told me before she died that she would come back, you know, in some form. And your mom is basically your, your mom's my mom now. And Macaulay Culkin's like, oh, hell no. So fucking Mark's like, well, your mom's my mom now. So there, and he goes to fucking leave the, uh, goes to leave the fucking clubhouse. And as he's like sliding down the rope, Fucking Macaulay Culkin is like, hey, yo, Mark. And then fucking Elijah Wood looks up at him. He's like, don't fuck with me. (laughs) Oh, it's one of the, it's one of the great moments of this, of the movie. Here, like fucking 10 year old Macaulay Culkin. Tell fucking uh, Frodo Baggins not to fuck with him. Absolutely precious. So. They move on to um, basically the whole movie. Every every time someone gets fucked up, like before Connie gets fucking thrown in the river, and you know, before you know, uh, Macaulay Culkin has this whole fucking demeanor of be, like 
oh, it'd be a shame if something bad happened to so-and-so. And then he, you know, so after this point in the movie, like, Macaulay Culkin decides he's going to kill his fucking mom. And he does the whole thing to, uh, he tells Mark, like, oh, it'd be a shame if something happened to that fucking mom of, of yours, right? Like, you know, he's like, he's like, you wouldn't hurt your mom. He's like, oh, no, she's not my mom anymore, remember? She's your mom. Wouldn't that be a shame if something fucking happened to her? So, dude, he does that whole fucking thing. And so Henry lures um, Susan out uh, to the uh, white lady cliff where Susan goes to contemplate why she doesn't have a fucking job or whatever the fuck she does out there. So, so he lures her out there. Now, Mark sees this happen through the window, but he, um, so he, <laughs> he's like, uh, so he goes to rush to Susan's aid, but they're like too far away. So he's like sprinting to catch up to them and, Henry's like, yeah, mom, let's just, we, we need, we need to go for a little, we need to go for a little walk and have a heart to heart. So there's this whole fucking scene where, uh, Henry tells his mom like, Oh, well, well his mom actually asked him flat out. Like, did you kill your brother Richard? And, and Henry's basically like, yeah, what if I did? What, like, what if I bitch, what if I did? What now? Basically. <laughs> So he basically confesses that he killed his own brother and, um, you know, he lures her out towards the cliff and, and then, uh, and then fucking Henry pushes her off the fucking cliff. Now she fucking falls down a ways, but catches herself. And, um, they did a really bad job hiding the like safety cable to yeah, that you know the harness that keeps you know the actual actress from fucking falling and dying uh <laughs> like you could see the safety cables attached um like down the actor's sleeve of their shirt you know it's like like dude that's that's really obvious <laughs> couldn't get a second take on that one or um so Henry pushes Susan off of the fucking cliff and um and but and and then uh, basically she's like she's hanging on for dear life and and uh Henry's picks up a big rock and is going to drop it on her fucking head but right before he can drop it on her uh Mark comes to the rescue and then Mark and Henry start getting into a fucking fight to the death and so this gives Susan the time to kind of climb back up the side of the cliff to get up to the top. And she's all fucking beat up and she probably broke a nail at some point on the way down. I don't know. And then so <clears throat> Henry and uh, Mark are sitting there fucking fighting, hit, hitting each other in the head with rocks and shit and trying to choke each other to death. And Susan climbs back up and right as she gets up to the top, like, Henry and Mark almost fucking, um, well, not almost, they they both roll off the fucking cliff, and Susan, like, just in the nick of time, reaches out and catches both of them. So she's holding 
she's holding the both of them one in each hand over the edge of a fucking cliff. And, but she can only save one of them. She can't pull them both up. She's going to have to let go of one of them to save the other one. Now, if you haven't seen the good son, what do you think happens at this point? If this was your choose your choose your own adventure story, what happens? Does Susan let go of Mark so that she can save her son Henry? But knows that Henry drowned his brother Richard and definitely tried to kill his sister Connie and tried to kill her. Mm. Or does she let Henry go and save Mark? Because after all, Mark hadn't done anything to anybody that she's aware of. And she was also tasked to take care of Mark while his dad was in Japan selling his used panty vending machine company. So, you know, choices. What happens, Adam? Well, this is what happened. Um, Susan lets go of Macaulay Culkin and Henry, better known as Macaulay Culkin, falls down the cliff to his death and smashes down at the bottom in a pile of rocks with the ocean waves consuming his body. And he's dead. And uh, she pulls Elijah Wood up to safety. And then they hug. And... They kiss and they laugh and then they fuck right there on the cliff. It's beautiful. No, that's not true. That last part's not true. Um, she pulls Mark to safety and then that's basically the end. So, <laughs> so I don't know. It's one of those movies where you're just like, You, you you can sympathize with with what's going on with the characters but it's like it's like if a uh, somebody filmed a uh a horror film in a West Elm catalog that's kind of what the the good son is but I like it um you know who didn't like it Siskel and Ebert good old Siskel and Ebert they didn't fucking like it at all their review of The Good Son is hilarious. It's awesome. Um, here we go. Here, well, here, check it out. Our first movie is named The Good Son, and it's a movie that inspires an obvious question, which is, why in the world was this movie made? What possible audience is there for a film starring Macaulay Culkin as a sadistic and hateful little monster and murderer? Maybe somebody somewhere thinks of this as entertainment, but I think of it as an exercise in irresponsibility by everyone connected to the project, 
especially the young boy's parents and managers, who should have thought twice before exposing him to such a distasteful role. Parents may not be smart enough. A lot of kids know that Macaulay Culkin is in movie. it, and they loved his other movies. Yes. And I've already gotten letters from parents saying, is this okay for my 9-year-old or my 11-year-old? The answer is no. It's not okay for anyone. Well then, thank you all so much for listening. I'm still sitting here. I'm wrapped in a blanket, wearing my slippers, and um, I have this delicious Fruit Punch Zero Gatorade from, from my dear friends Coop and Katie. Again, thank you guys so much. And thank you for the card. Really made my day. <laughs> oh, Christ. Okay, well, I, I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. And um, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Um, and uh, <laughs> since I'm trapped indoors um, for the next week, um. Maybe I can bang out a new episode uh, sooner than later. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. Uh, so this is, uh, again, this is um, this is Skeleton Factory podcast. And this is Adam. And um, I have COVID-19. And, uh, and uh, it's fine. I'll be fine. I'm going to do a review of COVID-19. Okay, ready? Here you go. Here's the review. Um, it kind of sucks, but, um, nobody cares. There you go. There's your review of COVID-19. Um, anyways, I'm rambling now. Well, you guys can keep up to date with me on, uh, on Instagram. I'm at skeleton underscore factory. And this is a Skeleton Factory podcast, rescuing your holiday season, your movie night, and your immune system, one movie at a time. I'll check you guys next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>